Now, if you are not going downstairs and you do not, you're above pre-K, then I encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, many of you know that we are in a series titled The Church, and in this series, we are looking at life in the church. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at how we make disciples, and we focused on the importance of how we come together and serve one another. We build each other up, how important it is that we grow in our knowledge of God through the Bible that he's given us. Last week, we looked at the importance of deacons within the church. We saw that deacons help to meet the physical needs of the church. And they're an example to the rest of us on what it means to, to serve and love others like Christ. Today and next week, we're going to be looking at elders. Elders are appointed uh, for the purpose of, of meeting the spiritual needs of the church. In the New Testament, uh, we often see elders are compared to, to like shepherds. And so to use shepherding terminology, we might say uh, the elders are shepherds. They feed, protect, and lead the body of Christ. Now, every year at about this time, we focus on the leadership roles of the church. We do so for many reasons, and we place a great deal of emphasis and importance on these positions. But the reason we do that is because God's word places a great deal of importance on them. And so I just want to read, um, even before we get into the text that we're going to be looking at, Ephesians chapter 4. And I think this is up on the screen, so I encourage you, just follow along. This is, this is what we're learning about just the importance of, of the leaders that God has placed. It says, and he, referring to Christ, and Jesus Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds and teachers, which very likely that refers to, to the role of elders and pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What we see throughout Scripture is that elders are appointed by Christ as a means in which the church is to grow in its faith and become more like Christ. The New Testament has, has no understanding of a Christian who lives apart from the church. According to Scripture, we're saved to be part of the church, and elders are a necessary means of which God uses in the life of every believer to grow them in the faith. And so with that, we want to see what is that role and, and what is the focus of elders in the life of the church. And so the main point this morning is that elders equip the church to keep the faith so they enter the kingdom of God. So that's what we're going to look at. Elders equip the church to keep the faith so they enter the kingdom of God. Now, as we dig into this passage, um, I want to clarify one point, especially as an elder preaching about elders to the church on the importance of the role of elders. It, it can feel slightly uncomfortable in ways, and yet, and yet it's not. Uh, in no way are we trying to communicate that elders are of greater value than any other believer in the church. We're saved by the same grace, given the same spirit, and joined to the one body of Christ. Elders are simply those who are gifted by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel and give oversight to the church in the, in the equipping of the church. And because their gifting comes from God, like every believer, all of our gifts come from God. None of, none of us develop our own gifts. They all come from God. What that means is that when we talk about the gifts of the church and, and the gift of elders to the church, we're particularly looking at how God cares for his church. And so what that means is like so for someone like me as an elder preaching on the role of elders, 
It means that ultimately we're preaching on how God loves and cares for his church, which takes the, the emphasis off of a person um, within the church and places it on the leadership of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so, so with that, I want to encourage you, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to be in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 8 through 23 this morning. Beginning in verse 8, it says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men! Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went up with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So let me pray. Father, we come to you now. In the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we understand that you have saved us and you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You have given us your spirit and gifted us with spiritual gifts for the building up of your body for your glory. As we look at your inspired word today, may we be encouraged as we see how you care for us. Grow us in our humility as we understand that you use other believers as a means of growing us in our faith. Increase our affection for your church today because of your word. We thank you for your abundant and all-satisfying grace. In the name of Christ, amen. You all may be seated. We're going to walk through our passage We're going to just make some points that we understand about elders. Uh, Number one, elders proclaim the supremacy of God's glory in all of creation. Paul and Barnabas, uh, they've been sent out. We're looking at Paul's first missionary journey in this text. And we see that he's, he's been sent out from Antioch. He goes to a place of Antioch where he preaches the gospel. He then goes to Iconium, and now he comes to Lystra, and they are preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Their goal is that people would hear the gospel of Jesus, they would believe in the gospel, they would be saved, and churches would be planted. 
This is the mission that Jesus gave the church. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, which is what they're doing. All through the New Testament, all through the Bible, we see that the God of the Bible is not a regional God, meaning he's not to be worshipped in only certain places or parts of the world, but he is a God worthy of all worship in every part, in every aspect of creation, which is why the church goes into every corner of the earth to proclaim the gospel. And we see this truth all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, like Psalm 19.1 will say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, meaning creation itself has been made in such a way that it points to the wisdom and the knowledge and the might and the power of God. Revelation 4.11 says something similar. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So if you look at one another, if you look at this world, if you look at trees, if you look at Mount Rainier, if you look at the ocean, if you look at the sun and the moon and the stars, and you say, why do they exist? Revelation 4.11, they exist because God created it and willed it to do so. Everything exists because God has formed it, and thus he is one worthy of all glory and honor and worship. Psalm 1611, this is interesting. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be God is to be infinitely supreme and to be full of gladness and joy and life. And so Joy exists within God. And so the psalmist is saying, in your presence there is joy. Of everything that there is in life, it's in you that I find life. It's in you that I find purpose. It's in you that my heart and my soul is satisfied. It's because of this go proclaim the name of Christ in all the world. This is why missions exist. Missions exist because we serve a God who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise, and so we proclaim his name. And so when we, when we come to the text, we have Paul and Barnabas. They're on a missionary journey. Proclaim the gospel. And we're told that they enter the town of Lystra in verse 9 where they preach the gospel. Now we know they preach the gospel because it says that, that Paul saw a man who had faith. And how does one come to have faith? Faith comes by hearing of the word of God. And so we know that they proclaim the gospel. In fact, if you were to go back uh, to Antioch into chapter 13, it records the message that Paul gave, which that was Paul's first stop on his missionary journey, which is probably why it gives a much longer detailed description of the gospel and the message that he gave. And as he goes to uh, successive... uh, Uh, cities and places where he preaches the gospel, it doesn't necessarily unpack the gospel that he proclaimed every single time. It did so at the first place in Antioch, and then we're left to realize he proclaimed that message every single place that he went. And so in verse 9, we see there's a man who has faith, and Paul notices that And so we're told that, that this man is then crippled, and Paul tells him to stand up. The proof that he has saving faith is that he is healed and is able to stand. Now, this is not the first time we see this in Scripture. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 3, Peter does the same thing. There's a crippled man. He sees that he has faith. He tells him to stand. And do you remember what he does? He jumps up. 
Jesus does the same thing in Mark chapter 2. There's men who have faith in Jesus. They have faith so that they, they cut a hole in a roof. Aren't you glad you don't live in that house? And, and they lower the guy, and he lands right before Jesus. And it says, Jesus, seeing their faith, forgave their sins, and he tells the crippled man, stand up. Now, we, because someone comes to know Christ does not mean that they always experience physical healing. And all of a sudden, they're, they're 100% healthy. But what we do see in the New Testament, especially as the gospel is going to new places, is that oftentimes there was a proof, a physical proof that came along with someone having saving faith. And here we see that the evidence that this man stands up proves the message in which Paul and Barnabas had come into this new area of preaching. And so then we see how the crowds begin to respond. Probably they would do something like many people would do today. Verse 11, they cry out, The gods have come down in the likeness of men. In verse 13, they're ready to make animal sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. They believe that these are, are embodiments of the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. Now, there's a reason they think this. There was a legend that existed that in the past, Zeus and Hermes had come and visited the town of Lystra. And, and they, sought, they sought hospitality. But instead of receiving hospitality, the entire town rejected them except for one older couple. And so they rewarded the older couple. But Zeus and Hermes then brought a flood upon the town, destroying every single person. And so now believing that because this man has been healed, surely this must be Zeus and Hermes again, they will not make the same mistake, and they come ready to worship them and give them everything they have. So what happens? Verse 14, Paul and Barnabas, they tear their clothes in disapproval of the people's actions. Notice they direct all worship away from them. Verse 15, they cry out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are of men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So several things we see. Number one, they reject worldly worship. Number two, they, they preach a message of repentance. They say, turn from these things, these things of vanity, things of worthlessness, things that have of no saving value at all. The Greek gods, man-made religion, has no ability to save, so they're saying, turn from it. It's worthless. There's no value in it. And then the main thing I want to see is that they point people to the one true living God. Notice verse 15. Paul says they bring Good news. Now, the word good news is where we get the word gospel. Now, in the first century, the word gospel communicated victory, communicated joy. It was, it was a word of great celebration, which is why it was, it was used perfectly to describe what Christ had done. It's the good news of Jesus Christ and how he has saved us from our sins. And so Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, turn from these things of vanity. We have something so much greater for you to know. We have a message of greatness, a message of joy, a message not about man-made religion, but a gospel about the true living God. And so he says, turn 
to the one true living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So to bring this back to elders, we're just getting a small picture here. Elders are called to preach the gospel and direct people to the one true living God, to the one God who can satisfy them, to the one God who gives everlasting life. Elders help people to see that trusting in anything other than Christ is vanity. There's many good things in this world. There's great things for us to to do and participate in, but nothing other than Christ can save us. Now, to be clear, every Christian is called to proclaim the gospel. Every Christian is called to make disciples of all nations. Elders are simply those who just lead by example. Elders are those who are called to equip the church that we would go outside these walls each and every day and week and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the ways that elders equip the church, one of the ways elders set an example is through the preaching of God's word. Every week through the preaching, elders remind the church that there is one true living God. We remind the church that we are sinners in need of repentance. We remind the church that this one true living God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross that we'd be forgiven of our sins by grace and have everlasting life with him. So every week we we teach and we equip and we try to set the example of knowing God's word and preaching is a way in which we do that. Now, preaching is certainly not the only thing the church does, but it is one of the most important things that a church does. And so I I want to encourage you. uh, There's many of you, especially because we live in in a military area, many of you will be PCSing at some point in the future, whether it's this year or the next two, three, four years, and you're going to be looking for a church. And oftentimes what we do is we we come up with our list of things that we believe are important and we try to get all the boxes checked. What I would say is go look for a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make sure that it preaches Jesus and nothing else because while while preaching is not the only thing that a church does, preaching will inform everything that a church does. And a church will never go beyond the preaching. And so make sure that as you look and as you have things that you're desiring a church to do, realize that all all churches are growing. All churches are needing more believers to be a part of it, to help equip and help meet the needs of the church. But the one thing that we all must look for in a church is that it knows Christ and preaches the supremacy of Christ at all times. And so elders or to set that example by proclaiming the supremacy of Christ each and every week. Now, if you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are saved. You are forgiven of your sins. You are justified. You are declared righteous before God. We're told that you are adopted into the family of God, and you are absolutely secure in Christ. But what we see in Scripture is that salvation is not only an event but it's this new life that we've been called to. If you remember when we were in the book of Hebrews, we said, think of salvation not only about starting the race, but about running the race to completion. Do you remember that? It's not only about starting the race, about being saved, but it's then about living as one who is saved. And it's as we progress in our knowledge of God and our likeness of Christ that we grow in our assurance of salvation. And As elders, we're interested not only in people coming 
hearing the gospel, raising their hand, saying, yes, I believe in Christ. But we're interested in about the daily progression of our faith, that we would grow in our love for Christ more and more and more. And that leads to the next point. Elders fortify the church's faith in the gospel. What we have here is is that Paul and Barnabas, they go and they're preaching the gospel and they go from city to city to city. And then notice what happens when they're done with their missionary journey. They don't just head home, but they come back to each of those cities, each of those places in which they preach the gospel and they strengthen the believers who are there. And we're told in verse 22, it says, they strengthen the souls of the disciples. Now the word strengthen, it means to establish It means to make stable. It means to become unwavering and unflinching. As you go through the book of Acts, you'll see Paul and you'll see other believers visiting churches, visiting Christians for the purpose of strengthening the faith. We have 27 letters in the New Testament. Four of them are gospel. One of them is is the book of Acts, which records the the outworking of the gospel into into the known world at that time. And then we have 22 letters Basically, two churches going out for the purpose of strengthening the church. In Paul's letters, we read in almost every single one of them that he prays that the churches would be strengthened in the gospel. God has given us his word that we would know him, that we would love him, that we would grow in our faith. If you are a believer here today, God's purpose in your life is that you would be strengthened in the faith that you would know Christ, that you would grow in your knowledge of him. And what we see is that elders are given for a particular purpose of helping to equip the church. Now you might say, but, but why? If we have the Bible, if we have all these other means, we have the spirit within us, why do we need elders? Let me give one answer to that. Because we live in a world which wants to distract us from the gospel. We live in a world that wants to distract us from the gospel. And we can look at many ways this takes place. But if you look at like Paul's letter to, to 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul will write to, to Timothy about the danger of desiring to be rich. And he will say that many out of their desire to be rich have fallen into a snare of wanting worldly riches. And because of that, they have wandered from the faith. Listen, Satan has many, many tools in which he seeks to lure Christians away from the faith. One of them is pleasure. We need to know that. Sex, acceptance, finances, possessions are just some of Satan's most attractive temptations. And his goal is to deceive us into thinking that these worldly pleasures are greater and more satisfying than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these temptations will come from outside the church, but they also come from within the church. And we need to know that like coming into here, into this room on a Sunday morning is not like a, a safe place from sin. I mean, we know that, but, but sometimes we forget that. Let me, give, let me give one example. We've talked about this man before. Perhaps you, you remember the missionary John Patton John Patton lived in the 19th century. He was a, 
minister in Scotland, and he had a very successful ministry. And what I mean by successful is he was seeing many people come to faith, and many people were growing in their faith, but he felt that God was calling him to leave his ministry in Scotland and become a missionary and go to the, a string of islands off of Australia called the New Hebrides. The islanders were known as cannibals. They were known as savages. And so Patton begins to share his desire in Scotland that he's going to leave this area and go to a foreign place to preach the gospel. And he says he met a great deal of resistance. And notice, notice how he describes it. The opposition was so strong from nearly all, and many of them warm Christian friends, that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will or some headstrong wish of my own. One man named Mr. Dixon cried out, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. So listen to how Patton responds to him. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as far, as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I just want you to think about that. Think about where the opposition came from. Could you imagine someone here saying, hey, I believe I'm supposed to go to another part of the world to share the gospel. And we go, ooh, that's not safe. I probably shouldn't do that. Elders are to respond like John Patton did to Mr. Dixon. We remind the church that pleasures and comforts must never become our gods. Listen, we, we can experience what's called spiritual drift. And what I mean is, is think, think of... You're going out to like the Pacific Ocean. And you're not really supposed to swim there anyway because of all the undertow, but suppose you do. And you swim off about a couple hundred yards off of, off of the shore. And you're out there and you're just having fun, swimming, frolicking, doing whatever you do in the water. And within about 15 minutes, you'll probably be several hundred yards further down the shore and you'll never know it. That's what happens within the church often. That's what can happen in our Christian life. We're going about our days. We're just living life, but we're maybe not being quite as intentional as we ought. And we begin to be distracted by pleasures. We begin to be distracted by, by simple comforts that God has provided for us. And we begin to be focused more on them than on the gospel. And soon, just like being drifting down the shoreline several hundred yards, we'll soon be living for things very different from the gospel. And when someone stands and says, I want to go to unreached parts of the world, share the gospel, we'll respond and say, that might not be safe. If we're not careful, we can be distracted not only by sinful things, but by good things as well. So what we, off, what we must do is regularly evaluate our own spiritual condition. And we do that through God's word, and we do that by coming together, and by having others speak into our life. We need to ask questions like, am I growing in the faith? Does the gospel inform and direct everything that I do? Let me ask you, do you prioritize the reading of the word? Do you prioritize prayer? Do you prioritize the serving and gathering with the church? Or have things begun to get in the way? 
This is always a great thing to evaluate during, during summer, especially here in the Northwest when the sun's out and we all love just to like run to the sun, which is great, but it's easy to be distracted. Have we begun to be distracted by hobbies and vacations, activities, by screen time that we've slowly begun to move away from the gospel? In Luke 9, someone came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. Now, isn't that what you wish like would happen to you in your Christian walk? Someone comes up to you and says, I want to follow Christ. Can you show me how? Like, that'd be amazing. We don't quite have that happen a lot, do we? But notice how Jesus responds in Luke 9, 58. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus never promises comforts and worldly treasures to those who follow him. Now this, by all means, and we've said this many times, we are not against possessions. We are not against having uh, things and doing uh, things of pleasure. We're not against money, but we must constantly be on guard against anything that would draw our eyes away from Christ and the mission that he has given us. Perhaps you've heard something like this, or maybe you have thought this. I won't go on mission trips or be too involved in church while my kids live at home. I don't want to share the gospel at work or in my neighborhood and make things awkward. There's a subtle lie that takes place right there. I'd rather play it safe, live comfortably, and don't risk too much. Think about it. how many Christians have bought into that lie and have largely made them ineffective for the majority of their life. So what does the elder do? We hope to strengthen the church, to spur the church on in their faith, that we would see the futility of foolishness of living a leisure-based life. Like John Patton, we preach the supremacy of Christ so that our people would prefer to be eaten by cannibals than to enjoy frivolous and finite worldly pleasures. I want you to think about that. That ought to be the goal of every single one. I'd rather follow Christ, and no matter what that looks like, than to simply live a comfortable life doing the things that I want. Why? Because God's glory is so great. And so one of Satan's weapons is pleasure, and if we were to look at another great weapon, it would certainly be pain. One of his greatest weapons that destroyed many people's faith is that of pain. And that brings us to our next point. Elders remind the church that trials are the path to glory. Go back to verse 22. Again, Paul and Barnabas, they've gone, they preached the gospel. They say, look, there is one God. He's worthy of all glory and honor. He's the one who will satisfy you. He's the purpose and the meaning of life. He's greater than all comforts, which is why they reject all worldly worship and they direct everything to God. They come back to strengthen the disciples. But then it says in verse 22, they not only strengthen the souls of the disciples, they encourage them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There are many people who have walked away from the church and the gospel because of pain they have experienced or witnessed. You know people like that. You might have walked away for a season in your own life. You might be here today and you've gone through difficulty and you've wrestled. Do I stay in this gospel? They thought that by trusting God, God would lavish his gifts upon them and make their life full of leisure. 
They didn't love God because they wanted God. They loved him for his gifts because ultimately they loved themselves. They trusted in God because they thought that God would make much of them. Their faith was never in a God-centered gospel, but a man-centered gospel. The role of an elder, and again, as every believer, elders just lead by example. The role of the elders to continually remind the church that the cross is the path to glory. We've been saved to live like Christ, and Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And our text here in Acts 14 perfectly describes this. You look at Paul and Barnabas. They preach the gospel. The city is ready to make sacrifices to them. They're ready to give them everything. But when they were in Antioch and Iconium, the Jews were upset at the gospel. They were upset of this calling people to believe in Christ. And so they began to follow Paul and Barnabas to these cities, trying to create an uprising. And here in Lystra, they were able to do so. And they were able to turn the mob that wanted to praise, wanted to honor, wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. And now they've turned them so that they would hate them and they would stone them. And so they gather together. They stone Paul for the preaching of the gospel. And then they drag his body, thinking he's dead, outside the city, most likely to be eaten by birds. Now, if you believe in a man-centered gospel, then you must conclude that Paul did something wrong here. Surely this would not be God's plan. God would never allow his children to experience such pain. Have you thought those kind of things? But we see no such message in the Bible. There's no such message in the Bible. Verse 22 could not be more clear. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. How do we enter the kingdom? Through tribulation. How do we enter the kingdom? Through the cross. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 12. Again, Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor in Ephesus trying to equip him. These are some of Paul's last words. There's things that he wants him to know. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The path to glory is the cross. We can never forget that. And we see this truth throughout the church or throughout the gospel and throughout church history. Again, if we come back to the life of John Patton. So he leaves Scotland at age 23. He leaves with his wife. And within the first year, he buries his wife and his newborn child. There were days that Patton would awake and his his house would be surrounded by enemies who wanted to kill him. This is what he wrote in his diary. He said, my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. A wild chief follows me around for four hours with a loaded musket. And though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and handbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me more to follow, and they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. So often when we see train our trials and pains and suffering, we say, why? Why does God bring these things in 
to the life of believers, to the life of those who follow him. When Christians leave all comforts and endure hardships for the sake of the gospel, it shows the supremacy of Christ. It shows the supremacy of Christ over everything this world has to offer. In fact, in in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes a passage I think perfectly displays what we see here in in, in Acts 14. This is what we read, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. So he's talking about his life. My life is a jar of clay. My body is a jar of clay. So that's how he's talking about Christians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now we could say a lot here, but what's the purpose of pain and trials in the life of a believer? Verse 7, show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. When we persevere in the gospel through the midst of pain and trials and tribulations, our bodies, our jars of clay are shown for the weakness that they are. And God's power is magnified at that moment. Look at verse 11. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our flesh. You have been saved to show the all-surpassing infinite worth of our God and trials shine forth And trials shine forth the love of Christ and the glory of God in your life. The the heat of the trial purifies your faith and magnifies Christ. You get that? The heat of the trial purifies your faith and magnifies Christ. So that when we get to verse, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4, this is what Paul says. For this light momentary affliction, remember, the thing that that he describes is death in his body. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now again, I'll say this. This is the role of every believer to remind the church of these truths. Elders just simply lead by example in proclaiming these truths. This is the message that must be proclaimed every week to every believer because we need it. We remind the church the path to glory is the cross. We enter the kingdom of God. We do not enter the kingdom of God on a cruise ship. Like life is not about a cruise ship. When people are perplexed over the trials, the elder reminds them, however great the pain is in the present, it absolutely pales in comparison to the insurpassable worth of God's glory that we will experience for all of eternity. Listen, Satan wants to use trials to destroy your faith. But God wants to use them to make his glory known and prepare you for everlasting, ever-increasing joy in his presence for eternity. Isn't that good news? Like That changes everything the way we look at life. And when we see that we've been saved from living from futile, finite desires to living for the infinite worth of our God, and he can use things like trials, which seem so horrible in ways and things that we'd want to avoid, and yet he can use those in a way that magnifies his glory so that in the midst of a trial, we would be fully satisfied with his glory also. That shows the insurpassable worth of God.
One more point. Elders care for the church by raising up more leaders. This is what we see, verse 23. Verse 23, we see that the last thing they do is they lay hands on the disciples of this new church and they appoint elders to continue to preach, continue to lead, continue to remind the church of the truth of God's word. Every church needs a plurality of elders. Never do we need one elder need plurality of elders because we want to make sure the church is rightly cared for. In fact, so one of the things we did at our church, maybe you know this, if you're new, then, then I'll tell you, we, we began an elder candidate process where we're hopefully just going to be over time training up more and more men to be equipped in the knowledge of God's word and be able to proclaim the truth of God's word in multiple settings, whether it's preaching here or in different teaching formats. And so actually you saw Aaron. Aaron came forth earlier today and he led us in the Apostles' Creed. He's been one of our elder candidates. And so uh, next week in, in, our, in our sermon on elders, it will be an installation sermon for, elder, for Aaron because he's going to become uh, an elder here at Timberline. Uh, he has grown just in his love for Christ and his love for the church. And it's amazing just hearing what God has done in his life. And so uh, we're going to be appointing him as an elder. And so for, for you who are my um, constitutional people, because I know some of you are going, wait, how do we do that? Uh, we're going we're to preach a message next week. And then in two weeks from today, so like I think that's September 3rd, we will vote uh, immediately after service uh, for the appointing of Aaron as um, elder here at Timberline Baptist Church. And we do that not because we, we're just trying to have men in, but because we want to make sure the church is properly cared for. Because we want to make sure God's glory is proclaimed at all times. And so I want to now just encourage you and challenge each of you men who are here. Is God working in you to become an elder? Do you sense the Spirit working in you today, moving you towards eldership? I, want to ask, I think every man should ask that question. God, are you leading me into that position? Now, perhaps today you are saying, there is, there is no way I could be an elder. I don't, I don't even want the responsibility for the building up and equipping of the church. Or maybe that just sounds intimidating. Let me just say this. There are no perfect elders. In many ways, uh, hopefully here at Timberline, the, the elders, we, hopefully we do a good job in, in encouraging and building up the church uh, to run the race until Christ returns. But we will not perfectly lead you. We will make mistakes. We will fail. And that has no need to trouble you. Isn't that good news? Like you don't need to be troubled by that at all because ultimately Jesus Christ is our perfect shepherd and he is the one who ultimately strengthens us in our faith so we will enter the kingdom of God and his power and his grace is so great he uses imperfect shepherds like me, like Jake, like Aaron to accomplish his perfect will. So the elder shortcomings are simply more ways in which Jesus proves his perfect faithfulness to care for the church, to prepare for his return. So you don't ever have to say, man, we have to find the perfect elders because there is no perfect elder. We just call those who are qualified knowing that God will use them even in their weaknesses and imperfections to proclaim the glory of God and to persevere the church. 
And so I want to encourage you men to just pray if God would be leading you that way. As a reminder, just here this morning, we've talked about elders and how they lead and set the example, but everything we've talked about, the need to, to encourage the church to not be distracted by pleasure and to be spurred on in our faith in the midst of trials, that's the role of every single believer. Elders are just simply those who are hopefully setting an example through the preaching and, and training within the church, but every single believer is called to live out these truths. Bow your heads and let's pray. Father, we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, and we, we ask that you would just magnify your son, Jesus Christ, here at Timberland Baptist Church. May Jesus be all, given all praise and glory and dominion in this church. Father, you have saved us. You have satisfied us. You hold us secure by your grace. Your church is a means in which you strengthen every believer. Father, I pray that you keep us from pride, keep us from thinking that we can run the race by ourselves. May we be committed to the church knowing that you use other believers and the elders to keep us in the faith. Use the elders and the members of this church to keep us from being distracted from the gospel and use the church to spur us on in our faith in the midst of trials. Father, our lives are humble jars of clay. May we be used to show your, your surpassing, your insurpassing worth and glory in all that we do here in this world. To you be glory and honor. In your name, Jesus, amen.